All right, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Nehemiah, so in a pastoral mindset, that's eons. And you probably don't remember a whole lot of what we've been talking about, but I'm going to, I hope that during the course of this message, you can start to remember some of the things that have made Nehemiah such an incredible book to study. It's why Nehemiah is quickly becoming one of my favorite biblically historical characters and uh, in all of scripture. I just appreciate him so much. And I appreciate his leadership. And look behind me, if you would, John White and his excellent work, no pun intended, excellence in leadership, wrote this, no test of leadership is more revealing than the test of opposition. Now think about that in your own life. Think back of when opposition has come into your life. What Did that pressure emerge out of you? What did it push out of your life? No test of leadership is more revealing than opposition. Christian leaders could go to pieces under such pressure. Some grow too too discouraged to continue. Others become embattled, embittered, vindictive. Not so Nehemiah writes White. Nowhere does his leadership shine more brilliantly than in his handling of opposition. So if you study church history, now here, here's immediately where we get our minds ready for this sermon, because you have to prepare to receive, right? When there's a big banquet laid on your table, don't you wash your hands, hopefully, especially in flu season. Don't you pull up the chair to the table. Don't you make sure there's silverware and a plate and a glass You know, all the pieces in place. All right, so this is how you receive the Word of God. You're about to eat. You're about to dine. You're about to hopefully, Lord willing, profit from the Word of God. You have to prepare. And one of the ways that you prepare is all of a sudden, right now, getting your mind in gear. You ready? Let's interact. Do you know that in church history, if you go back the 2,000 years since the church has existed, that the... Most successful, that word, remember it, the most successful attacks on the church, they've not come from outside the church. They've not come from unbelievers. Yes, they exert pressure. But the most successful attacks on the church didn't come from outside and didn't come from non-believers. They came from within the church from their own believers. That's true in all of church history. Because external pressure, it can push a church together. But internal strife tends to pull a church apart. Now, if you've been in a church that has split, or if you've been in a church that has been marked by disunity, then you'll know what I'm preaching is true. And it's what begins to happen in chapter 5. And let's get in there. I hope you got your Bibles open. Listen, if you didn't bring your Bible, please bring your Bible. But if you didn't bring your Bible, maybe Hurricane Sandy blew it out of your hands. I don't know. I'm really stretching for something. There's got to be some crazy reason that you didn't bring your Bible to church. I mean, we're the people of God's Word, right? You should be in the Bible marking it up so it marks your life. So if you didn't bring your Bible... There should be one right in front of you. Would you please grab that Bible right now? Josh, did we get our Wi-Fi working? CEFC is a lowercase. You probably got nine minutes before it bumps you off, so you better hurry it up. 
Get out to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's be in God's word together. That's your check and balance to make sure what I'm saying is right. And here's what verse 1 says. Now there arose a great outcry. Now stop there and look at me for a second if you would. Did you hear that great outcry? If you're, if you're familiar with the word of God, you've heard it before. In chapter 3 of Exodus, it was the great outcry of the Israelites under the Egyptian harsh bondage. God said, I've heard their great outcry. I've heard it coming to my ears. And this is the same word. This is huge outcry of the people under Nehemiah. Look what it says. He's heard, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. In other words, the families... The families are crying out and not for, not toward, but against their Jewish brothers. Now that's incredible. If you've been in Nehemiah 1 through 4 and you read this, you know what it's like? It's like a screeching of the fingernails on the chalkboard of your soul. This is not what's been happening. This is freakishly awkward and uncomfortable Because before this, the people were working for each other, with each other. God was working for his people. And all of a sudden, you get the first hint of negativity within Israel. They're against their Jewish brothers. And it's not the surrounding nations. Listen, it's not Tobiah to the east. It's not Sanballat to the north. It's not Geshem Geshem the Arab to the south and the west. These aren't the enemies of God that are coming against them. The opposition, the againstness is from within to their own brothers. What would it be like for you if Cornerstone was filled with aggressive, angry factions and disunity. Would you really come here for very long? I wouldn't either, honestly. I wouldn't stay very long. Not if the Lord wasn't about to do something to it and about it. So picture this. This is Nehemiah. This is his challenge. The struggle is no longer the out. The, uh, the, the minister of the nations around them, the, the struggles from within, from their own people. It's a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. And look at who's involved in this. There's three groups that are crying out. Here's the first one, verse 2. For there were those who said, group 1, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Here's the first group, and it's filled with people. They're struggling to get enough food to survive. And it makes sense, right? There are thousands of people. They came with Nehemiah back from Assyria, back to Jerusalem. And they didn't, this is three days. Nehemiah started working on the wall three days after he arrived in Jerusalem. And these people, they haven't had time to purchase land. They haven't had time to plow the ground and plant it and harvest it. They have no food. You'll see why there's a shortage in a minute. And when we look at the the second group, the second group, verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. You hear my voice cracking? This is what it does. It like cracks and then it regains strength. Let's see if it happens. It'll be kind of fun. You just laugh at me while I crack my voice. It's not puberty. I made it. 
Here's the second group made up of farmers. Now we've got farmers and they're struggling because there's an exorbitant debt that they're incurring. Why? Because look what it says. There's a famine. The ground cannot produce the crops. And because it can't produce the crops, they're taking loans. And because they're taking loans, they're digging deeper and deeper into debt. But there's a third group in verse 4. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So the third group are people who are struggling under the tax burdens. I mean, the famine was bad enough, but listen, the king doesn't care. There's a tax. You've got to pay your tax. And most of the taxes that they paid went to King Artaxerxes, not to local municipalities. They've got to get their tax, and there's tax collectors, and the job of the tax collector was to make sure that you gave the amount that was due that you owed for your land, and then there's a tax collector who skims the money off the top, and they've got the Assyrian army behind them. And you've got these poor Jews who've got to borrow from their wealthier countrymen. They've got to borrow from nobles and officials. And when they borrow from them, they've got to pay back their loans. And they can't pay back their loans because the loans, the cash for their loans is going to pay their tax. They're actually taking out loans to pay their taxes. Listen, have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to take a loan to pay your taxes? Not a lot of us have had to do that. So you can picture these three groups. Some are saying, I don't have enough food to feed my family. I've got to buy food, but I don't know where to get it because there's a famine in the land. And the second group, the farmers are saying, our land, our fields, our vineyards are not producing. And I don't have the money to be able to pay off these loans that I'm taking. And so they've got this, this debt that they're in and these taxes that are going. And the third group saying, I can't even pay my taxes. I'm borrowing from my wealthy countrymen and they're charging me interest. Thanks. Hi, everybody. This is my son, Matthew. Thank you. It's my oldest. Looks just like me, doesn't he? Actually, looks like his mom. He's uh, pretty handsome. So you've got all this going on. He'll never come up here again with a cough drop. I guarantee it. I love you, kiddo. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Now, you need to know the culture. I can't pay my taxes. I've got to borrow from you, wealthy Jewish brother. And if I can't repay you, my only option is to sell you one of my children as a slave until I pay off my loan. And if I default on my loan first, you take my fields, and then you take my vineyards. And if I still can't pay it back, you've taken my children. They now become your permanent property, unable to be redeemed. Moms and dads, can you picture that? Can you picture being so poor that you have to sell your children to pay your loans? Listen, it's either starvation or servitude. And they're trapped. They have no fields. They have no vineyards. They've been possessed. And therefore, they have no means to buy their children back. So now you've got this great outcry coming from these three groups towards a fourth group. Here's the fourth group. They're made of wealthy people, wealthy Jews. 
And the fourth group is giving loans, but yet they're tacking on such exorbitant high interest and exploiting them with greed that it's creating this massive outcry of pain. And Nehemiah is hearing it. Now, let me say this about these three groups, because this is really important. They're not people who are living irresponsibly. They're not people that want boats and homes larger than they can afford. They're not people that are pouring after the things of the world and digging themselves into deeper and spiraling debt. They're not irresponsible people. They're not going into wrongful debt. They're people whom life has come against them. They're not people who are just laying around doing nothing, asking for handouts. And by the way, the Bible is remarkably clear on what the church ought to do when people who can work, won't work, and want you to help. The Bible's crystal clear. You cannot argue with it. Yet, I've had people get so angry at me for this. Here's what Paul says. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That seems so harsh. You know why it's harsh? You know why he says it? Because if there's people in Cornerstone who can work, yet will not work, and they come to the leadership and say, I need financial help. They're pulling monies that ought to be furthering the kingdom of God and bringing people into the kingdom. That's why it's dealt with so harshly in Scripture. That's not these groups. There are people, the latter part of, of which it says, they do their work quietly and they earn their own living. That's pleasing to the Lord. But yet life has come against them. Life has knocked them into circumstances they cannot control. They're in trouble financially. And here's the people who have the means to help who will not give mercy. And it's creating internal strife. And it's as much a problem today as it was then. It's as much a problem in the church as it was in Jerusalem. These were worldly compromised people and they were affecting the community of God's people. What is Nehemiah going to do? Now, what I've just done, what I've just done is giving you the context it's introduction. You can't go into verse 6 if you don't know verses 1 through 5. If you don't know what's happening that's creating this great outcry, then won't, you won't understand why Nehemiah does what we're about to see. And here's what he does. Number one, and this is surprising, verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Listen, he became angry. And we think, well, that's not very godly. That's not a very good thing. Yet there is a righteous anger. We don't have much of it. It's usually not righteous that's the anger that's in us. In fact, David Pollison, book writer, counseling expert, says he estimates, and he, he doesn't really know, he estimates though 95% of our anger is ungodly. But there is a righteous anger. You know what righteous anger is? 
Righteous anger always ends in the glory of God. Unrighteous anger always ends in the betterment of myself. If you just take that definition, you can begin discerning, is this righteous anger in me? This is righteous anger in Nehemiah. You know what's interesting about the book of Nehemiah so far? Nowhere does Nehemiah get angry at the enemies of God that are outside their walls trying to destroy Jerusalem. I mean, why would he? Why would we? Why would we be angry at the people in the world who want to harm us and want to propagate their own moral free agenda? That's what they're supposed to do. They don't have Christ. Nehemiah never got angry. Look in the book. He never got angry at the enemies of God. Who he got angry at were the people of God who know better should be the holy people of God, set apart people of God who have the word of God and the spirit of God. And he's angry at those who claim to be the people of God who have the means to help the suffering and yet would not because of the greed in their hearts. Friends, I can get that. I really get that. I don't really often get angry at non-believers. I mean, I just know they're living according to their fallen nature. I mean, I'm, I don't know why we would get angry at that. Where I get angry is in the church. Where I get angry at are those who call themselves Christians and love to fight. And they love to disunify and they like to bring strife. Disunity has pure destructive power. I mean, just briefly consider this. If you read through verses 1 through 13 of chapter 5, skim it. There is no mention of work happening. There's no wall being built. In verses 1 through 13, the work on the wall had stopped. Because when there is strife and when there is disunity, it is literally impossible for the church to build the kingdom. You cannot do it. And so here's Nehemiah's righteous anger. These wealthy people who are in a position to give mercy and yet are withholding it from those who are, who are legitimately in need. They are stopping the work. The people who should be working are giving a great outcry. Nothing is happening. And this is what the enemy does. And if you haven't picked this up yet, this is just, just one more strategy of the enemy. If the enemy of God's people cannot get the work to stop from outside, then guess what? They're going to try to destroy it from within. You ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? That late preacher with that simple southern drawl? He said this, In the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he did was join it. And you know when the devil's joined the church. Because always, without fail, the response, the sign, and the symptom is disunity. The devil's never joined a church that is bound together. So first of all, Nehemiah, he got angry. And that's godly leadership. When your anger is for the glory of God. Secondly, he did nothing 
until he was thinking clearly. And this is a great lesson for us. Look what it says. I took counsel with myself. I cannot speak with that thing in my mouth. You know, anger and emotion. Listen, just look at it this way. It's part of a train system and it runs on tracks. And if it's not the caboose that is bringing up the rear of the train, if it gets in front of the locomotive, which, is, which ought to be your mind and truth, you're going to derail. When the emotion drives your mind, you're going to run off the tracks. It's inevitable. When you take counsel with yourself, you're putting truth back in your mind. You're doing what the New Testament says. Take captive your mind, take captive your thoughts, and you're putting the emotions back where they need to be. Right thinking produces right emotions. It doesn't dispel the anger in Nehemiah's heart. It put the anger on the tracks so it can run the right direction. And here's where it ran, right to the nobles and the officials. Whoever slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Here is Nehemiah who aims before he fires, he thinks before he speaks, and then he does number three. He confronts the guilty privately. Do you see that? Friends, if there is something that somebody has done that has offended you, you know what the proverb says? Please listen to this. This will kill most conflict in the church. The proverb says it's to your glory to overlook an offense. It's your glory to drown it in grace. God will heap blessings on you. That's what it means. It's to your glory. He will heap blessings on you when you submerge that offense in grace. Now listen, Proverbs knows what it's doing and it holds it in balance because here's what it says. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. But listen, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You've got to discern between is this a one-time offense or is this a repetition, a habit, because if it continues to come, it will separate friendships and create disunity. I brought charges against the nobles, verse 7 and the officials, look at the wording, I said to them. He went to them privately. You're exacting interest each from his brother. He's saying you're exploiting your own people. You are guilty of violating the word of God. How do you know this? Well, you take Exodus 22. You take Deuteronomy 23. And you take Leviticus 25. And it gives you four clear guidelines for loaning money. And if you think it's no longer valid, then you don't understand the principles. Because here they are. Number one, it's not wrong. Listen, it's not wrong to lend money to a Gentile or a non-believer for interest. That's what the Bible says clearly. It is not wrong to lend money to a Jew or today to a fellow Christian. Nehemiah is doing this. You're going to hear him say, well, some of us say, well, all debt is bad. Well, that's not really true. If Nehemiah is lending money and grain, he's putting people in debt. He just won't exact interest. And that's what gets us to number three. It is wrong to demand interest when you lend money to a Jew or a fellow Christian. Listen, if you're in a position where you have the resources 
and you see somebody that is in need legitimately and you lend money to them, you cannot, according to scripture, Christian, ask a Christian to put interest on it. That would violate the word of God. And it is wrong to enslave a fellow Jew or put in bondage a fellow Christian. We even adhere to this in the benevolence ministry. I had last night a person whom we've helped out, their family member, the breadwinner, is going through horrific cancer. They need to have oil for their heater. They have two kids in the family. So the benevolence team with our deacons, they are extraordinary people. They are so giving, but they will give biblically. And they will withhold biblically. And they gave money to this family to get oil in their furnace and take care of some of the needs as his father is in a treatment center for cancer. And one of the people in that family came up to me and said, listen, I'm working and I want to pay that money back. I said, you can't. You can't. That's grace. That's a gift. You should give faithfully to our church. And you should give faithfully as we have to you, to other people in need, but you can't pay that back. That wasn't a loan with interest. That wasn't slavery. That was a free gift. And it was to honor you and to love you and do what God asks. It's how it works. And his word guides us. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land. Listen, if you want God's blessings, then you give freely without increasing what is paid back. But the truth is, these nobles and these officials were so greedy that they cared nothing for God's word. And so here's what Nehemiah does. He went to them privately. They would not repent. They would not Stop what they were doing. He goes to the next level. Verse 7. I held a great assembly against them. This is church discipline. Only one time since 1996 that I can remember. Have we had to publicly discipline somebody in our church. One time. But we were willing to do it. Because it's an act of love to do it. It's an act of grace to do that. And Nehemiah says, it's time to bring you before the community. It's time to deal with this in front of everybody, the people of God. And he says, look what you are doing. He lays charges against them. Look what you are doing against our own family. We, as far as we are able, verse 8, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Four times in this passage, Nehemiah uses the word brothers. Look what you're doing against your own family. Now you might be sitting there going, well, you know, we really don't have slaves in our home. And I don't really loan money to people in the church, so this is kind of irrelevant to me this morning. We're going to take this passage in two passes. Next week, we're going to go deeper down below the surface and look at the gospel behind it. But let me give you a foretaste, a preview glimpse. Ready? Is there anybody in your life 
who has hurt you and wounded you and you've not yet forgiven them? If you're honest and saw your heart the way God does, there's bitterness, there's resentment and unforgiveness in there. Do you know that you're holding that person as your slave? That you are holding them into a debt that they will never, ever perform out of? They can't earn their way out of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness has always been a free gift. You choose to forgive, not when they have asked for forgiveness, not when they have earned your trust. You choose to forgive as God has forgiven us, even while we were yet enemies of his. You holding somebody in unforgiveness, then you're violating this. You are the wealthy, nobles, and officials. But behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Listen, it is beautiful. It is beautiful when we have a congregational meeting. Unlike the one we had years ago where we had an intern that wanted to work with me in the youth ministry. And he, of all weekends, said, I can only come in this weekend to worship at your church. And I said, well, great. Come on in. We've got our annual meeting. And you're going to love it because our people love each other. It was the meeting from hell. Three hours of people standing up saying, I'm not going to give any more money to this church unless you change this. Arguing back and forth, angry at the pastors, angry at the elders. That was it. He never, ever came back. And I wouldn't have either. It is good and it is pleasant. It's like oil that is being poured, that psalm says, over Aaron's hair to run down his beard the fragrance of the spirit of god that speaks of the unity that he provides listen when the oil of the spirit is pouring down the people in this church we will love each other and we will overlook offenses but in that day in nehemiah's listen if you're going to really get this you got to understand the custom it was a custom to indenture yourself as a servant. In other words, to get hired by the person that gave you a loan. No cash. You exchange labor for cash. You, you don't have the cash to pay your loan. Then I'm going to work in your fields as a hired servant. Until I've worked enough to pay off my loan. But if you tack interest on the loan, which was expressly forbidden in the word of God, then you will never be able to work enough to pay the spiraling inflation of your debts. And now you've got to pay, bring your children to work in their fields. And meanwhile, your fields aren't tended. Meanwhile, your cash flow is reduced. Meanwhile, more of your family has to work. And it's a spiraling deficit that was occurring. And this is why they're crying out to Nehemiah. We have no way. And if you default on the loan, they take your land. If you default on your loan, they take your vineyards. And if you still default, listen, they take your family. This literally happens. You're doing this against your own Jewish brothers. But here's what the Bible says in Leviticus. If your brother becomes poor, if circumstances come and they drive that person into poverty, if he becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall 
be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. You know, I just had this question, and it's a very common question. I don't like Christianity because the Old Testament condones slavery. Listen, it never condones slavery, anything like the horror that we've seen in our country. Never. Never. You treat your slave with dignity. And if you punch your slave in anger, there's a penalty for your master. The law was in place to guard grace and love. And to put in every seven years and every 49th year a way for that servant and that slave to free themselves. It was nothing like the horror and the atrocity of slavery. It was meant to help people who are poor. To give them an opportunity. And if you captured people in war and they became your slaves, even they could go free. But they were silent, verse 8. They could not find a word to say, but Nehemiah is not done. Listen, silence is not the goal. Repentance is. And he moves on. Look at what you're doing against our God. Not only against our own people. Look what you're doing against our God, verse 9. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? You know, at the root of greed... And at the root of exploitation, at the root of the love of money, listen, it is at the very root of it, a distrust of God. It's a lack of faith. You know, let's do something together. I don't often do object lessons. Pull out your wallet, would you? I'm not going to ask for anything of it. You're just holding it. Or your purse. Guys, if you have a purse, please just stow that. Don't let us know. Pull out your wallet, put it in your hand if you would. Everybody, let's do it. You're not going to give me anything in it. Hold that in here. Hold that in your hand. How tight's your grip? As you live life, how tight is your grip? Because the tighter the grip, the less faith you've got in God. The looser your grip to appropriate giving, the more you're obedient and you're more you're filled with faith and the fear of God. What is the fear of God? Is the fear of God the fear that you're going to get out of step with God and he's going to hit the smite button and obliterate you? That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is a heart filled with awe and adoration and a desire to lay all of my life in faith. Lord, you've got it all. You know, God owns your wallet. Pastor Tim, I work 70 hours a week. It's my hard work that fills the wallet. Who gives you your health? Who gives you your abilities and your gifts? Who gives you the good favor of your employees? Who gives you another day tomorrow to make another dime? It is God. It is his and the one who holds the wallet loosely says when he looks at it, this is God's. It's not mine. It is only God's and he's entrusting it to me to use it the way he directs. I'm a steward and I'm a manager. I'm not an owner. We own nothing as pilgrims in this world, Christian brother and sister. At best, we're stewards and at best, we're managers. But when we struggle, 
in letting our Christian brothers and sisters who are in need borrow things that we own. Listen, it's so easy to rationalize. We're only taking care of our stuff. I've had my log splitter returned broken. I've had my trailer returned smashed. And there's always a part of me that says, I'm going to grip them tighter and I'm not going to let them out anymore. I can't afford this. And then God begins to peel my fingers off and said, listen, that was my trailer. And that was my log splitter. You give it out when I direct. When we get into those gas stations and in those stores and you see those lottery tickets and the Powerball numbers and the hundreds of millions and you start buying those tickets, listen, you get down to the root of your heart. They have a bulb at the bottom of the flower that's planted deep below the surface. You know you're going to find, you're going to find a heart that's not satisfied with God, what God has given and doesn't trust that he's given you all that he needs, that you need. You walk in the fear of God and you begin to see needs around you and you begin to loosen your grip and say, God, are you moving me to help? But when we hold back from giving to the church, oh, there he goes, preaching money. I can't wait to do a series on financial stewardship. It's going to free so many of you. You know how many of you have come to me and said, listen, I think God's really doing a work. We're now giving 2% of our income. And I'm going, really? That's the work of God? The Old Testament standard was 28%. You know what Jesus made the standard? He said, it's 100% that, that I own. So let me direct you how to give it. I'm giving 2% now, I'm really growing. No, you're really disobeying. Because at least 10%, the tithe ought to be going, not maybe to the church, but certainly to people who are in need. I don't think it all needs to come to the church. Give it to people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Give and be the wealthy Americans that we are and let God use the resources he's given you. And Nehemiah is confronting their behavior. He's laying charges. Look at what you're doing against God. There's no fear of God in you. Listen, you know when you're at the root of your behavior, if you're going to be somebody that lives and, and tests and examines yourself, you're never ever getting to the root until it turns vertical. Do you know that? You are never to the root until it turns vertical. Until you see what you're doing before the face of God, Coram Deo, before the face of God, until you get that deep, you're only managing and coping with behavior. You can't transform until it turns between you and God vertically. And at the very vertical depth of greed and love of money is a heart that says, I will not walk in the fear of the Lord. I don't trust him. I'm going to hold on to money. I need to get more money, more things to satisfy my heart. It is a leaking cistern, Isaiah says, and you will never get enough. That lottery won't do it. And Nehemiah says, look at what you're doing to our witness, verse 9, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. You know why I get so angry when there's disunity in the church? Because I have a really hard time going to my gym where I work out and intersecting with unbelievers and inviting them to my church. I mean, it's really hard to invite people to Christ when Christians are filled with the same thing the world is. 
The world laughs at a church that is filled with strife. And a world will pay attention to a church that's filled with unity. In fact, let me prove it to you from almost 1,600 years ago. And let me tell you what was happening in Rome almost 1,700 years ago. Rome under Constantinople had become a Christian empire. And then Julian came to power, the emperor Julian, and he hated Christ. He hated Christians. His sole goal was to return Rome to its idolatry and its pagan roots. And he began to lash out against Christians, and he he wrote what I'm about to read to you. It's on the screen behind me. This is from him. Why do we not observe that it is there, the Christians, benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives? That's sarcasm. They have done the most to increase atheism. Atheism atheism was his word for anything other than Greek mythology. Christianity. It is disgraceful when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans or Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. The church was living in a way that the world began to take notice and it began to empower the proclamation of the gospel. So then, Galatians says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, everyone. Now notice the tier. There's a second tier and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You love each other in this church. Do I love you in this church? Especially to those who are of the household of faith, for there will never, Deuteronomy says, cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide, open wide your hand to the needy, to your brother, to the poor in your land. How wide open is your hand, friends? How much of a grip does money have in your heart? And when you see people around you that are in legitimate need, and you're in a position to help, do you begin to rationalize and dance with the Spirit of God for all the reasons you shouldn't and can't? Look at one final point. Look at what you're doing against your leadership, Nehemiah says. Not only against your brothers, not only against God, not only against the witness that we have with the nations all around us. Look at what you're doing against your leadership, verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. You know what he's doing? And this is the hardest part of the sermon for me. I'm going to be honest with you. I was tempted to take it out, but I wouldn't be preaching the whole council if I did. Because guess what? Now I'm squarely in the spotlights, the spotlight. So isn't the rest of the pastors, so aren't the elders and the board of our church. Godly leaders walk the talk. They demonstrate what they preach. Look at what I'm doing, Nehemiah says. Look at me. I'm lending my money. I'm lending my food. And I'm not exacting interest. I'm not pulling people into slavery when they can't repay it. I'm obeying the word of God. And I'm walking in the fear of God. This is a courageous call to godly leadership. And guess what? It forces me 
to examine myself with Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. That's what I'm doing to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know how hard it is to preach that? Because I still struggle with my grip. I still see legitimate needs and wonder if somebody else is going to take care of it. And I get broken log splitters back and broken trailers. And I'm saying, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. I am supposed to steward what God gives me, right? Maybe I shouldn't give it out. And then God says, no, that's absolutely the opposite way to go. Friends, is your heart free from the love of money? Likely not. Not in America. And by the way, not in Africa either. Where one house in the community got a new, brand new, shiny aluminum roof. Everybody else's were grass-thatched huts. And all of a sudden, neighbor after neighbor after neighbor went to their local bank and money lenders and went into debt to get their aluminum roof right down the street. True story. It's not just America. It is on board the nature of sin in every single human being. Are you giving as you ought to give to the church? Are you giving as you ought to give to the poor people in this world? Are you discerning how God wants you to give? And is your hand loosely holding all of what God has given you? Are you committed to love those in the family of God? Listen, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities in the next few days for the church to rise up and the world take notice. Live with your compass to people and your compass to God. Watch the leaders pray for us that we are worth imitating and live in a way that is merciful. You will please the God that you love, and he will honor you, and he will bless you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. This is a hard, hard, hard message to preach, and it has to be hard to hear. Lord, I pray for your grace to underscore your word in the hearts of your people this morning. Let it not be wrestled with and fought against. Let it be received from your word, Lord, bypass me. If I've preached anything wrong this morning, let it be quickly, immediately forgotten. Let the birds carry that away. But Lord, what was true, what's in conformity to your word, Lord, let it not be able to be sent away. Let it residue, Lord, bring its residue right into the hearts of each of us and free us from the love of money. Free us from the root, the lack of faith, and the lack of trust. And let us be the people of God of whom the world will take notice as we give mercy and help to those in need. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.